Hi, this is the Pilgrim Family Podcast. I'm Eva, my little brother's Theo, and my mom and dad are Sean and Angela. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Pure Living Family Podcast. Today, uh, we have Dr. Armin Nikogosian. Gosian? I probably said Nikogosian. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> we call him Dr. Nick for short. Um, so, Dr. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. No, thank you for having me. Um, it's uh, great, great talking with you guys. We've been... Yeah, we started with Dr. Nick a few years ago now and just have been so grateful for the referral. I'm not sure who referred us to you, um, but have just, we were in the, in the world of looking for a new functional medicine doctor for Theo. He had been recently diagnosed with pandas and Theo's local pediatrician obviously wasn't very trained in pandas and was so great and just said, hey, do your own research. I'll do whatever you need me to do. Um, so we started researching, found you, and have just been so grateful for the knowledge that you've brought to our team and to Theo's diagnosis. Um, and Dr. Nick, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I'm a, I'm a medical doctor. Uh, I've been practicing uh, for about 21 years, 22 years almost. Um, I started out originally as an internal medicine primary care doctor. Um, but I also had dabbled in, uh, I was a hospitalist for a little while. I worked hospice, I worked intensive care, I worked HIV clinics, I worked at the VA for a while in a, as a chief of primary care. I've kind of worn a lot of hats over the years. Uh, about, uh, well, in 2009, two, I'm sorry, 2010, my uh, second son, I have four children, my second son was uh, diagnosed with autism. And that kind of really changed a lot of things for me. Uh, I think the primary thing that it did was, you know, we sought out help for our son, which from my perspective and my wife's perspective, something happened to him because we saw this big change in him. Um, But unfortunately, the feedback we were getting from the doctors that we saw was pretty much, you know, pat on the back and, uh, you know, do therapy, good luck. Hope he gets better. And uh, there's something just didn't sit right with me. And prior to this, I, I had always been interested in, you know, what back then was called alternative or complementary medicine. I'd incorporated that, of course, into my practice. So I always had an interest in that, but I never quite made the dive. Uh, in order to help my son, I spent the next few years really researching that sort of aspect of medicine, which which I didn't really get training in in medical school or residency. I kind of had to learn on my own. And I found out there was actually a lot of things that you can do for autism. And, and in, in within that group of autism, you know, I've kind of grouped developmental delays, uh, pandas, pans, uh, all these sort of so-called fringe diagnoses. Um, they're, they're, I, I, call, I consider them fringe in terms of not the diagnosis itself, but in terms of the fact that you can do something about it, that it's, that it's actually an actionable diagnosis you can work with. Um, anyway, I, I had researched that for several years. I started treating my son. He started getting better. Um, and then I started, uh, you know, friends and family and, 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 and 
other people that I knew that were in the autism community here locally in Southern Nevada, uh, they started asking me to help out with their kids, which I did. And, and kind of snowballed. And before long, I decided to just change my whole practice to reflect that, which is what I had always wanted to do anyway. So it was, uh, it worked out actually really well in, from that regard. Uh, so then I started doing functional medicine full-time. Uh, currently, I have a functional, active functional, full-time functional medicine practice here in Southern Nevada. Uh, we do see patients from all over the world. Uh, we, we do remote consultations. We do live consultations. Um, it's about 80% children with autism, and then it's about 20% uh, adults, uh, primarily adults with gut issues, autoimmune issues, and some adults just seeking anti-aging and just optimizing health as well. Um, and that's kind of currently what I do. Uh, most of my passion definitely lies in uh, treating children with, with developmental delays that essentially are the parents are not getting answers from their regular doctors in terms of how to help. Um, there's a pretty good crossover with that, with the adults, with the immune issues, because as, as we've discussed many times, so many of these developmental delays are immune mediated, as we found out, um, whether it's pandas, uh, pans, autism, even in some, to some degree, even ADHD as well. Well, real quick, let me just jump in here because I did get my functional medicine certification through the Functional Medicine Coaching Academy. Um, and mm -hmm. I'm curious to know more about your training in that, in that mm -hmm. space because so you're an internal medicine doc, you get board certified in that. How do you get certified or how were you introduced to the functional medicine model? There's a, there's, there's a couple of different ways for certification right now. There's not a board certification in functional medicine as, as a like recognized specialty, like, like cardiology, internal medicine, you know, oncology, those kind of things. Um, but there's absolutely a line of training, uh, and several lines in my particular case, I focused primarily on IFM, which was the Institute for functional medicine. Uh, that was more sort of, it was definitely more geared for adults, uh, gut issues, immune issues, detoxification, those sorts of things. And then the other sort of line that I went down was the Medical Academy of Pediatric Special Needs or MAPS. Mm -hmm. um, MAPS is essentially functional medicine training for uh, practitioners that want to treat children, specifically children with autism and or other developmental delays, which, you know, which is the whole umbrella of, of other disorders there. So, so those were the two primary ones. I think there's, um, I mean, there were many other areas that I looked into. There were, you know, certain Lyme treatments and detox protocols. And, you know, there was sort of a lot of sort of scattered uh, tools that I could pick up, you know, and the way I kind of look at it is, you know, it's, you know, I was making my toolbox bigger, you know, I used yeah. to have, you know, those little toolboxes and now I got the big drawer, right? So, you know, two double-decker drawer. And uh, in order to make that double-decker drawer, I had to crawl around the garage picking up tools for a couple of years. So, and they were scattered uh, all over the place. But thankfully, there were two main bins with the tools, so that that helped. So and that was maps you, and IFM. Do you feel like your son was really the one that drove you to get that additional training and certification because you wanted to find other ways and means of helping him specifically? Absolutely. Uh, well, you know, the reason was. Because I, I thought about it before, I was always interested in this field. This was definitely where my passion laid. Um, the problem is is life, right? You have a practice. You know, it's financially viable. You know, you're supporting your family. It's it's scary. It's scary to transition to a different model. 
you know, the way functional medicine is structured, unfortunately, it's very hard to take insurance. Yeah. There are doctors that pull that off. You know, we don't have an insurance model set up through ours uh, because I, you know, I really wanted to practice it the way I, I feel it, it should be practiced without any constraints, you know, from third parties. Um, you know, so it was, it was risky to do that. And I never really pulled the trigger until essentially I feel like I was forced to, uh, you know, my son sort of forced my hand and, you know, a good forcing, uh, yeah. I, I certainly don't mind, but sometimes you need these crises in your life to uncover opportunity. Um, you know, I, I think it's, uh, what is it that says uh, the Chinese character for crisis is supposed to be like a opportunity and something else. I always get that wrong, but it's, but it, you know, crisis does bring opportunity and, and certainly having a child diagnosed with something like that is a crisis there. You know, we've all been through that and we all know, you know, kind of how that goes and it's, it's a big deal. Um, so yeah, he, you know, I don't know if even today, if that hadn't happened, I don't know if I would have pulled the trigger on changing the way I practice. Yeah. And that's what we, why we love talking to you and our appointments with you, because you are walking this journey with us. You don't feel like you've, you know, hit a end or a resolution with your son. You're constantly learning. You're constantly evolving and he's constantly teaching you mm-hmm. and you're, I mean, it's a communication and dialogue with you. And I don't feel like you have this ego where, you know, you have to do this protocol and you're going to change your son. It's more of a you know, a communication and dialogue between, I mean, a parent to parent. And that's why we're so grateful that we found someone like you that's able to have these conversations with us. Well, and I think on that point, it's an important thing to say is like, you know, for all the different things I learned from these organizations or my colleagues or whatnot, I actually learn as much from the parents, from the kids, you know, you have to always keep an open mind because so much of this is uncharted territory it's better than it was 10 years ago and so even better than five years ago. It's constantly evolving, but there's a lot of gaps. There's a lot of gaps in what we're doing and where we're going with it. So, and, and you have to be open to information. So, you know, if something works, regardless of where that source is, you, you, you got to take it seriously and look into it and see, is this, an, you know, is this a one-off anomaly or are we onto something here? You know, maybe mm. this is something that can help other families too. Well, and that's one thing that Angie and I have loved about our interaction as well is that you have zero ego. So I guess that was a question I wanted to ask you is you obviously have far more training um, and certification than most of the people you interact with parents for us, for example. But every time we bring a question up, you're always open to at least having the conversation. So is it that 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 knowing that there's still more to be discovered that allows you to be that way or what makes you so open to conversation and maybe alternative modalities? I think anytime that you're treating a problem that is evolving, um, where, you know, it hasn't been all figured out, which, which personally, I don't, I don't know if anything in medicine has been all figured out. Right. But some things have been more figured out than others, you know, like diabetes, for instance, or high blood pressure, right. We've got pretty good treatments for that. You know, you don't have to necessarily reinvent the wheel for these things. Uh, but when you're getting into something, you know, like autism, a spectrum disorder, uh, it, you know, first off, it, you know, it starts off with it's a faulty diagnosis, right? Mm-hmm. It's a psychiatric diagnosis, not a medical one. So they're lumping together sometimes some very dis- disparate kids, right, yeah. that, that have really different things driving it. Um, so right there, the, the first thing is you're dealing with that, you know, you're, you're dealing with, with, with a, a framework that was that in my personal opinion is faulty and out of date 
which is the whole diagnostic framework that they have. And, and this revision that they did a few years ago where they got rid of PDD and Asperger's and these other things, I think that made it worse. I don't think it made it better, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the second thing is it is evolving. You know, we don't, you know, we look, you look at all the money, you know, that, uh, you know, the uh, uh, NIAID and, and, you know, Fauci's, you know, cohorts and all those guys, you know, that they spend on, you know, vaccination and COVID research and gain of function, you know, billions, billions, billions of dollars. Uh, same, you know, same thing, HIV or AIDS research, cancer research, you know, they got deep pockets. Autism doesn't have that. And I don't know why it doesn't have that. It should. It affects, you know, by, by some estimations, one out of 40 boys now. And it's crazy. You know, it's, that's two and a half. What is that? That's, uh, you know, that's several percentage points of the population. I mean, that, that's huge. And then this thing didn't really exist to any extent 30 years ago. You know, why is why isn't there more money for this for research? And the money that is there is mostly spent on genetic research, which I think is very low yield for what we're trying to do. Uh, it's helpful. Everything's helpful, and I'm appreciative of it. But I, I think it could be so much better spent. So unfortunately, so much of what we do, we, we we try to follow the evidence as best we can. But at least in the journals, the the evidence is sparse on some of these things. Uh, so we have to go a lot of times off clinical experience and and anecdotes and. Uh, and, and really just, you know, what I call more scientific medicine, you know, scientific medicine is where you may not necessarily, um, you know, have data on it being done, but when you go through it scientifically, it makes sense. So it's worth a try, especially if you have no other options, you know, for the kid. So when you're in a situation like that, you have to have an open mind, you have to have humility. Uh, you, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine it any other way. I appreciate the comment about the ego, but my wife would totally disagree with you about that. So maybe I'll have you call her and talk to her or something. But uh, you know, but yeah, you you have to keep an open mind for it because it it is. And even when you do figure it out, you know, for one kid, great, you figured it out for one kid. Now you got you know hundreds of other kids that it you know may, maybe there'll be some parallels, maybe there won't. You know, each case really is unique. It's it's hard. It's, it's one of the most challenging things of, well, it is the most challenging thing I've ever done in medicine. And, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Like I said, I, I love coming to work every morning. So it's, uh, I always look at the schedule. I'm like, Oh, what do I got today? This should be good. So. Well, that with that one example story you gave, and maybe you can sum it up for us uh, here on the podcast, you had mentioned the Hindu tradition that you had heard. Why don't you mm-hmm. tell us uh, and our viewers what your experience or what you heard there? Because Angela and I both appreciated it. Um, okay, well, I'm not a Hindu, so I might get this wrong. So for any Hindus out there, especially those that are familiar with the religion, I apologize if I'm getting this wrong. But this is my understanding of it. Um, you know, they bring uh, in, in this tradition, they, they'll, they'll have avatars come down. You know, that we all are familiar with the word avatar, right? It's, uh, you know, that little cute picture you got on you know, discord or whatever, uh, you know, an avatar, it was from Sanskrit, from the old Hindu text. It was basically like an, it's like an angel coming down. Uh, I, I think avatars can also be kind of bad too. They could probably be demons too, but we'll focus on the good ones. So they come down and they um, change people's lives coming down. And, uh, and it's not always all, you know, happy, you know, fruity, everything's great. Um, you know, many times, sometimes these positive changes may initially not look like it's a positive change. Mm. It may actually look like a bit of a disaster actually in the beginning, which 
you know, I, you know, I, I won't speak for you guys, but I know I can speak for myself. I mean, that's exactly what I thought was happening when, when this whole thing kind of dropped, uh, you know, you know, the usual, you know, usually it's the dad goes through the denial, which I did, you know, like for about a year, you know, they're wrong. Right. And then you go through the, you know, uncle so-and-so who's a rocket scientist now, and he didn't talk till he was six. And you you find all the exceptions and, you know, you got to go through all these, you know, stages. Then there's the self grief and the self pity. Why did this happen to me? You know, never mind the kid who's actually the one suffering, right? We, we, the suffering is only secondary for the parents by extension. It's really the kid that's suffering. And then one day it just, you know, you got to get through all that. And one day it kind of clicks and you realize, well, this is what it is and we need to do something about it. Um, that's, I think, the first step. And then you start realizing as these things happen, that this person has been kind of sent, well, you can look at it as this person has been sort of sent down to, to help the family. That's been my complete experience with my son. My son, Jonah, you know, he, I mean, he's absolutely, I mean, I mean, I almost look at it like he took a bullet for the family Mm. because, because of his issues, it elevated the health of our whole family because of the things that we started focusing on. And, you know, when you have, you know, more than one child, you're not, you're not going to do one thing for one child and not for the others. If you're going to, you're going to get the health of one child better, of course, you're going to do that for your other kids. You know, you're going to do that for all your, you know, your whole family. And, and it, and it starts spilling off onto the other, on, onto yourself in terms of what you're doing. Sometimes I think it's out of fear. If you're going to have more children, you know, you're fearful. You're like, well, I don't, I don't want this to happen again. And what do we do wrong? What, you know, what can we do better? it makes you really reassess your life in terms of what are you doing in your life? You know, we all go through this period when we're younger, where we, we have this you know, idea that we're kind of immortal, you know, that this won't affect us. Um, you know, we can eat what we want, do what we want, you know, live whatever lifestyle we want. And we're going to be okay. Just because, you know, in your twenties, you are okay. Right. And yeah. you just kind of bounce off, roll off and keep going. It doesn't continue. Unfortunately, I'm sure there's a few lucky souls that may be, but for most of us, it doesn't. And we got to start making those changes. You know, I think everybody comes to a different place in terms of how they make those changes. But I can absolutely say one huge impetus for that change is having a child with special needs with really that's kind of being medically driven, you know, with with some physiological dysfunctions. You know, what do you do to fix that? And what does that do to everybody in the family as far as elevating that? I I mean, I honestly feel... uh, yeah, I, I I do believe you know Jonah was uh, you know I mean this is where we kind of get into like woo woo land a little bit here but uh, yeah it's um, how do I say this uh, I, yeah I guess there's no easier way to say it than I mean it was just he was just sent down to help help us and he did and I, I mean, think yes. that's like such a huge um, lesson to learn and a lot of time and heartache has gone into that before you reached this point. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I know for me and Sean, it's taken a lot of heartache for us to finally be like, this was the way we were supposed to live. This is Mm -hmm. the way Thea was supposed Mm -hmm. to be. And what can we learn from him? Because sometimes it just feels like we're running a million miles an hour. Like what can we do to help him? What's next? What do we do after stem cells? What do we do after gut reset you know what do we do after all these things instead of just slowing down and being like what are we here to learn from this experience 
you know? And I think that's why we love having conversations with you because I think sometimes you bring us back to that reality. Like, hey, let's focus on Theo here. Let's not focus on what you guys want for Theo. Let's focus on what Theo needs, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, I think there's a, I, I, I really actually think that parents have to go through a mourning period in order to really be balanced on this. And, and what you're mourning are those expectations you had for your child before this happened, because we all create them in our heads. And I think until you let go of that, I think it's hard to really focus. Now, I'm not saying you just write off the kid and like have zero expectations of them. No, you, you still have expectations like any parent would, but you have to reformulate them, you know, based on where the child is now. Of course, you know, especially when you start early with treatment, you, everybody shoots for recovery and, you know, recovery is real. Uh, it's, it, it is a minority of kids that it happens to, but it is real. But when it doesn't happen, some families kind of feel like they lost. It didn't work. And to me, that's, I mean, you always go for that, certainly, but the goal, the goal needs to be to get that child to the best functional status that you can, wherever that ends up being. Um, and I think until you let go of those sort of, you know, I call them pre-diagnosis expectations that, that we all form in our minds, it's hard because then you always have that little bit of, uh, well, it's, it's bereavement really. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, you know, exactly what it is. And, and I, I don't mean like our, I don't mean to say like, you know, the, the child's dead and, you know, and, you know, start over, but it's the, it's the, it's what's, what should be dead are, are these expectations. We have to be realistic in terms of looking at what we can do for our child and the expectations that we have for them. Because the one thing that I've learned is no matter where the child is, they still want happiness and love and all the same things any other kid wants out of life. That part is no different whatsoever. Just because the kid can't talk, that doesn't change anything. The only thing that changes is it makes it hard to, okay, communicate. Certainly there's some challenges there. It doesn't change the child's mindset. Mm. And, and, you know, still being able to give that in the, in the best way you can, that that's, that's what we, you know, we, we want to do. And, and of course, you know, try to foster as much independence as we can. Well, and I, I think, also uh, think from that my, my experience, just from one second to respond to that is it's a, almost like a reevaluation of our expectations every three, six, nine months, because mm -hmm. sometimes we set these goals and then nothing, we're, we're not moving towards those goals. And I totally understand what you're saying is that it, mm -hmm. it's almost like, this death of this expectation of we wanted this to happen and it's not mm -hmm. happening. So now it's, let's reevaluate our expectations. Sorry, Ange. Oh, that's okay. I, I mean, I, I totally agree with what you're saying too. I just was thinking as you were saying that Dr. Nick about the, you know, the core morbidities that these children have and treating those, like, let's talk about those a little bit. How many kids in your practice only have autism and aren't dealing with anything else? It's pretty rare, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Very rare, actually. I can't actually think of any off the top of my head because it and the only ones I think that do, frankly, are the ones where we haven't looked. Um, you know, and they've got that diagnosis from early intervention from when they were two or you know, wherever, wherever they got it. Um, but yeah, it's uh yeah, you don't see it. The, 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 it's it's complex. You know, the average kid I see has four, five, six problems, easy, uh, you know, if not more. You know, and that's and that's what makes it so complex, right? The way they interact and everything. But what we got on the flip side of it, you know, we've got 
you know, wonderful, dedicated parents. Uh, and we have children that are troopers. I mean, that's the only word I can use for them. I mean, they really are. I mean, they, our kids are, they're tough. They go, they've gone through so much, you know, they're hard workers. You know, we expect all this from them, from therapy. And, you know, they got their schedule, you know, jam packed at five, five years old, you know, and they're going to everything. And, um, you know, they, I, I have an immense amount of respect for our children and, you know, and, and I see it as, as they get older, you know, some of the, some of the older kids, particularly the nonverbal ones that they have, you know, some, they have the hardest time, you know, they've had such a hard time expressing themselves. They have a lot of frustrations, you know, when some of these older kids start communicating through letter boards, typing, you know, alternative methods, this is exactly what we hear from them, you know, that they, you know, they, they, they were in some cases wanted to take a break uh, or that they were tired. But on the, on the other side of it too, they, uh, they talk about their frustrations. You know, they, well, I don't want to say talk, they communicate about their frustrations, uh, about uh, how everybody underestimates them, mm. how, you know, people treat them like they have intellectual disability. Some of our kids do have intellectual disability, but I'll tell you, a lot of them don't. A lot less than people realize, and certainly a lot less than are carrying the diagnosis. You know, I think, I think those are all things to to remember. You know, when we're interacting with them, is to, you know, presume that they're competent until you see that they're not. And when they're not, that's okay. And teach them. Yeah. You know, they're capable of that. Maybe it takes a few extra goes. Maybe it takes a little more reinforcement. But they're still capable of all these things. We just uh, had our therapist read "Underestimated" by J.P. Harding, mm -hmm. um, yeah. J.B. Harding, I should say, because yeah. that was one thing that I learned um Angie and i both adopted this i don't know a year or so ago of speaking to theo like he understands everything mm -hmm. instead of mm -hmm. making the assumption that he doesn't understand and we felt like there was a switch there was he responded better um and, and he listened to commands better when we actually treated him as though he understood everything even though even not knowing for sure if he did understand mm -hmm. which was really cool mm -hmm. to see um but we just have about five minutes Oh, I guess four minutes. So the one thing I want to say is Dr. Nick has helped us from the very beginning to really make some huge leaps. And I think first thing we did was did, did the gut reset. Um, we used the greens. We continue to use the greens with Theo daily on a daily basis, which I've adopted as well. You've talked about how it improves mm -hmm. everyone's health. And that's typically the route you go, right? Is you help a lot with gut health is kind of the the starting point. And then from there, you kind of carve out their own personal path. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we try to figure out what bucket, the physiological bucket or pathological bucket, whatever you want to call it, the kid falls into. And gut is usually featured quite prominently in there because remember gut and immune kind of tied together. 80% of your immune systems in your gut. Uh, we look at mitochondrial dysfunction that usually plays a pretty big role. Uh, we look at toxic burden, whether it be mold or metal or pesticides that, you know, is, you know, in a large proportion of patients that can be an issue. Um, and then there's a whole host of, you know, other things as well. Um, you know, the, the, the grains are, that you mentioned, I think are, are definitely a great addition because one of the things we're constantly fighting is oxidative stress. Mm. Our kids are are more oxidized than the average kid because of all these stressors going on in their body and we're trying to quench that through antioxidants and various you know nutrition and supplements and you know the, those, the, those greens can provide that amongst other things so
Anything final from you, Ange, to um, just have about two minutes left? Sorry, I had muted myself. Um, I just, I guess one last question for you, Dr. Nick, with parents, what is one thing you wish parents would know going into this diagnosis or their first appointment with functional medicine? The, the one thing I wish that they would, the one thing I wish that they would tell parents like right away at like early intervention or where, you know, where as soon as they kind of find out about it is that this is something that in most cases is actionable, okay? You can do things to make the kid better. In some cases, completely better to full recovery. We have seen that in younger kids that at this point they're indistinguishable from neurotypical child at eight or nine. But up to, you know, maybe get the 13 year old severe low functioning kid out of diapers and, you know, potty trained, okay? Which may seem like a small thing to, a lot of people, that's a big deal for independence, you know? So yeah. there's a, a whole gamut of things that you can do to improve that function and how far that function goes is anybody's guess. But, you know, it, it really depends on how the kid responds. But the important thing is, is that as parents, because we're the child's, frankly, the child's only hope, we have to give the child that opportunity to envision that or to, to achieve that. And you know, we want to give that opportunity to the child so that the child can be the best they could be, which isn't much different from what, like I said, that's what we do for all our kids, right? We want them to be the best they can be. So it's it's really no different. It's just not not accepting the fact that this is a done deal. You know, therapy is the only option. And I'm very supportive of therapy, don't get me wrong. I love therapy. Therapy is important. It's just not the only component. You know, there's there's more stuff there. I wish, I wish that awareness would get out there because it breaks my heart when I see somebody, you know, bring their kid in, they're eight and a half years old and they haven't, you know, they haven't done a single thing, you know, from our end. And they, we can, we can still get some, some motion on it. It's just like, it's just like, I, I wish, you know, I wish they would have brought the kid at three or something like that or three and a half, you know, but you know what, better late than never, you know, we'll take it at any age, but that awareness, if that, the, the better that awareness can get out there, I, I, I think that the better off our kids going to be in the long run. Thank you. Hi, this is the Pure Reading Family Podcast. I'm Eva, my little brother's Theo, and my mom and dad are Sean and Angela.